0: This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community.
1: The other day, I received an email asking if there was any software that could reliably decode Morse code transmissions. Not to be overly flippant, but my knee-jerk response was, no. Having said that, I'd be dishonest if I said I haven't occasionally used Morse decoding software at my station. When I'm hunting and pouncing in a CW contest, I often turn on the CW decoder that's built into my write-log software. Some of the stations I'm trying to work, well, they're blazing along at 35 words a minute, and I just can't copy at that speed. But decoding CW with software has been a tough nut to crack for many years. Despite all the progress that's been made, the human brain is still the champion. None of the CW decoding applications can get anywhere close to the ability of a well-trained CW operator. The reason really has to do with ambiguity. CW software is very black and white. The signal has to be of a certain strength, and the keying has to be nearly perfect. If the software is working with a strong CW signal generated by someone who is a masterful sender, it can do an excellent job. But if conditions deteriorate, or if the guy at the other end gets the least bit sloppy, all bits are off. Now listen to this recording of a CW exchange that I heard on 40 meters recently. Conditions weren't great, the band's a little noisy, and to make matters worse, as you can tell, the signal's a bit chirpy, but I could copy what he was sending perfectly, and I'm sure most of you could too. The human brain has little problem with this. It can deal with fading, interference, or sloppy sending, because it knows what the operator meant to send. It fills in the gaps right away, automatically. Now, this isn't a rant against CW decoding software. As I said, I use it myself from time to time, but until the day comes, if it ever does, when artificial intelligence is put to work decoding CW and doing it in a way that is flexible just like our brains, I think software will always be second best. I'm on the telephone with Bob Allison, WB1GCM, and Bob is the assistant ARRL laboratory manager, but he's also the guru of product review. He does all of our product review testing. And one of the things that you'll see frequently when we're testing transceivers and receivers is a reference to IMD, intermodulation distortion. And there's receive and there's transmit, but Bob, can you describe what imd is yes most certainly steve
2: uh imd as you say is a intermodulation distortion and what it is uh it's an effect that your receiver creates in other words uh it can create a false signal if there are two very strong equally spaced signals at the antenna jack so uh, let's say if you have uh Uh, if you're tuned to, let's say, 14.020 on your dial, and there's two strong CW stations, one at 14.040, and another one at 14.060. So those are 20 kilohertz spacing apart. So they're evenly spaced, 20 kilohertz apart in this example, and if those two signals, are strong enough at the antenna jack, it'll create a phantom signal in your speaker. So you'll think a signal is there, or you'll hear something, and it may be interfering. But it's actually not there. It's actually generated inside the radio as a result from two evenly spaced, strong signals.
1: That would be incredibly confusing to hear. So you're hearing this right on the frequency you're tuned to, correct? Yes, that's correct. And in fact, I've experienced it myself. And uh, if you're in a
2: CW contest, for example, and uh, you're copying on a clear uh, clear spot on the dial, if you can find one, and you're copying Morse code, but the Morse code's all gibberish. The dashes and the dots are all mixed up, and you can't make sense of what's being sent, and you're thinking, who's goofing around? But it's actually IMD. And, uh, of course, with CW, it's kind of... Uh, Hit or miss of what two strong signals are on simultaneously at the same time, depending on, upon what people are sending. But this effect is also apparent with single sideband. Uh, maybe during another contest, when the band is really packed with very strong signals, you'll find a clear spot, but you'll hear a lot of garbage. You'll hear a lot of what I call swap. In other words, it's, it's the two strong. Um, signals mixing together, the single sideband stations mixing together, but the resultant signal, um, the phantom signal that you're tuned to uh, on your tuned frequency is uh, grr, 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 just all garbly and you can't figure out what that is. That's also another case of intermodulation distortion.
1: And this would affect digital modes as well, of course.
2: Yes, it does. So uh, the idea is to have a transceiver that can handle some sort of form of intermodulation distortion. And if you'd like, I could go into uh, what uh, actually happens inside the front end of a receiver to cause that. It's a little bit technical, but it has to do a little bit of mathematics and mixers and the like. And, and so, uh, basically, uh, a receiver if you're tuned to let's say 14020 and there's a strong signal at the antenna jack one at 14040 I'll use that example again and what happens is the the mixer kind of puts out harmonics so you have a mixer in the front end of a superheterodyne receiver what happens the incoming signal mixes with a local oscillator and at the output of the mixer, you'll have multiples of frequencies. That's what mixers do. They make multiples. And it's up to the IF stage after the mixer to pick the right multiple. But what happens if the st- signals are strong enough? Uh, another multiple gets through, and it beats with the signal that you're trying to hear and mixes up, and uh, you get IMD. But it's uh, it's basically a... Uh, A first-order product mixing with a second-order product, which creates a third-order product. A little hard to describe it on the radio here, um, but uh, it can be done, but not now.
1: (laughs) What about uh, software-defined radios, Bob? Uh, When it comes to IMD, receiving IMD, do they behave any differently?
2: Well, uh, the effect is the same, even though the architecture uh, is different. And uh, IMD can be caused and created by other devices, such as preamps, or even filter stages. So any kind of device that passes through RF can generate some form of IMD, if it's strong enough.
1: Okay. Now, when you're testing a transceiver in the screen room there in the lab, uh, how do you go about testing for receive IMD? Oh,
2: good question. Um, I use, normally, three signal generators. Okay, I'm simulating in the laboratory the received signal. So I have a a signal generator that's tuned to my dial frequency. Then I have two other signal generators and a, a fancy class A amplifier followed up. But I have two signal generators that I combine that also arrive at the antenna jack of the test receiver and so I use a total of three. So one for the tuned frequency and two to create the IMD.
1: Okay. And then you measure what exactly?
2: Very good. Um, well, I, I, um, I have the tuned frequency. Let's say I have the tuned frequency signal generator right at the uh, noise floor, a minimum discernible signal level. Uh, usually it's around minus 130 to minus 140, somewhere on there. So I'll have a signal generator running at that level then the two signal generators they're equal they're kept at equal levels and what happens is I bring them up and uh, I bring them up the levels of the two offending signals that I call it the IMD signal and I bring it up with a step attenuator I bring them up 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 until I just hear that phantom signal popping above the noise floor and when it equals the noise floor level, in other words, the minimum discernible signal level. When the IMD signal equals the minimum discernible desired signal, then I have what's called the IMD level. And that IMD level might be around, let's say, minus 40 dBm, or let's say minus 30. Let's make it a little bit more realistic, minus 30 dBm. Now, if my uh, minimum discernible signal Is minus 130 dBm, but the strongest IMD signals that my receiver can handle is minus 30. I take the difference, minus 130, minus 30, or whatever, 130, minus 30, you have 100 dB range of your receiver that it can handle IMD from the weakest signal possible that it can hear up to the point where IMD is a problem when you bring up those IMD offending signals to minus 130. Yep, that's 100 dB of IMD dynamic range. Hope that makes a little bit of sense.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, putting yourself in the shoes of somebody who's looking at a product review in QST, uh, and maybe they're not terribly technical, what should they look for? What is, <laughs> what is a good IMD? Is that a fair question?
2: Well, it has. It, it's a great question, Steve, but uh, you have to uh, premise it a little bit. It all depends what you're looking for as an amateur radio operator. Now, if your intention is is to uh, just have an average antenna, a dipole antenna, a very simple antenna, then you don't need a very, very high, high uh, dynamic range. But here is how I break it down. Here's how I break it down um, as far as performance goes. A top, top, top transceiver, top performance IMD uh, dynamic range would be in the vicinity of 110 100 to 115, actually, 100 to 115 dB. That's a top-performing receiver. Any, any receiver that has an overall dynamic range of 100 or greater is a top performer. And you'd want a top-performing radio if you're a very serious contester or DXer and you have a tall tower with a lot of aluminum on it then the received voltage at the antenna jack is much higher. Therefore, you're going to need a higher dynamic range to handle the signals. Now, if you're a a guy with just a dipole, and uh, somewhere in the 70s for a dynamic range is just fine. So you may not really require a top-end, top-performing transceiver for your dipole antenna. You you might be uh, able to spend less and then get something around 70 dB. It all depends. Or you could have your antenna, your simple dipole or vertical antenna and have the top performer and you can impress your friends with all the bells and whistles and knobs and switches and lights.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's right. So it it really depends on uh, what you're going to do on the air, how you're going to use the radio. That's
2: right. And, And typically small little transceivers that are used in cars or mobile or portable use don't have a very, very high dynamic range. It's, it's good enough uh, that you'd normally not experience uh, any kind of intermodulation distortion with, let's say, a transceiver that has a 75 dB IMD dynamic range. Chances are you'll never hear that with that dipole. However, if you hook that uh, economy-based entry-level transceiver or mobile transceiver into a very, very good antenna system, let's say you brought it over to W1AW, and you hooked it up during a contest, yeah, I I would bet that you would be able to hear intermodulation
1: distortion products in some cases. Okay. Thank you, Bob. This is very enlightening.
2: Yeah, very good. And uh, so there's other dynamic ranges that we can talk about some other time. There's reciprocal mixing, and there's also blocking. So there's two other dynamic ranges to talk about, and then the overall performance of dynamic ranges. By the way, on the QST product review pages of our website, I created a brand new page uh, off of the ARL Laboratory and product review, and it's a supplemental list of transceiver, transceiver performance, and I've just created this quick glance list of about 50 transceivers that you can look at the overall dynamic ranges of each of the transceivers and compare them at a quick
1: glance. Oh, wow. Okay, I didn't know that.
2: That's brand new. Well, you know, since we've had this pandemic thing going on, We've been working at home and i've been able to complete uh, projects uh, that i've been working on a long time since i'm not testing but i am able to work on some new projects great i'm going to go and <laughs> look and see how my rig compares <laughs> you bet that's what it's for and there's also some other uh older supplemental uh information on the page as well uh for older transceivers to compare to
1: perfect thank you very much bob if you follow technology media I'm willing to bet you've heard of the word blockchain. Now, depending on who you read, it's the most amazing development in computer technology, it will revolutionize networking, it will save the world, and so on and so on. But really, what is blockchain? Well, I'm going to borrow from the late physicist Dr. Richard Feynman and say, if you think you understand blockchain, you don't understand blockchain. (laughs) (laughs) I've read many attempts to explain this supposedly revolutionary technology, and they've all pretty much failed in one way or another. So, now it's my turn, right? I know just enough to be dangerous, so I'm going to keep it very shallow and very simple. And yes, there is a ham radio angle to all of this. Just hang in there. At the core of blockchain is the concept of trust. Trust is an essential part of ordinary living, whether it's Picking mechanics based on Yelp reviews, sliding your credit card into a gas station fuel pump, or heeding your doctor's advice. But our trust has been eroding for years, and the situation has declined severely with the advent of the internet. That's a problem. The less trust you have, the harder everything becomes. For example, did that job candidate you're considering really graduate from college? The resume says she did, but uh, do the records that back it up, are they trustworthy? When it comes to transactions conducted over the internet, trust is absolutely critical. Now, when I say transactions, though, I'm not just talking about money. I mean any kind of sharing, even amateur radio contact logs. The hype about blockchain is that it purports to guarantee trust in transactions, again, whatever they may be. It started as the encryption technology behind the cryptocurrency... Bitcoin. You've probably heard of that too. But blockchain is so much more, potentially easing the doubts and uncertainties that dog so much of life, whether you're buying a used transceiver from a stranger, having faith that a piece of fruit is really organic, or knowing that a prescription drug isn't counterfeit. Blockchain, in effect, hardwires trust into transactions or data that we might otherwise be a little bit more cautious about. But other than calling it encryption technology, I still haven't answered the question about how blockchain works. Okay, here we go. A blockchain is an ever growing set of data blocks. Each block records a collection of transactions. Most people store such information on central computers. I mean, we all tend to do that. For ARRL's Logbook of the World, for example, all those QSL records are stored in a computer system that's managed at ARRL headquarters in Newington, Connecticut. But if all of those records were stored in a blockchain, they would be distributed across a group of computers, maybe even thousands of them. Now, Each computer would have its own copy of the blockchain transactions, and they would all be synchronized with each other automatically. That decentralization and synchronization means that no single party controls the data. If one business sells an asset to another, each sees the same data. There's no need for lawyers at one company to call the other if their accounting databases disagree because there's only one accounting database. Blockchain protects the information using the same cryptographic key technology that keeps hackers from sniffing out your credit card number when you type it into a website. One digital key ensures only you can enter a transaction to the blockchain involving your assets, your data, and the other digital key lets someone else confirm it was really you who modified or added the transaction. Because all of blockchain information is distributed, synchronized, and encrypted, the blockchain is virtually hacker-proof. Any attempt at tampering would be instantly detected. In fact, any attempt at hacking is pretty much futile. This means you can trust the information that is stored in a blockchain. Imagine if the entire Logbook of the World database was stored in that fashion, in a blockchain. You would have a digital key that would allow you and only you to view your QSO records and request awards based on your contacts. You would know that everything was secure and Logbook of the World would trust that the request was based on valid QSO records that someone hasn't tampered with. Of course, most of us will never have to deal with blockchain directly. But as it becomes more widespread, and believe me, it's becoming widespread, it'll become part of your daily life, whether you know it or not. It'll be running in the background to keep all of your information safe and trustworthy.
0: Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech, produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright ARRL and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.